Hello and welcome back to the second half of an extended interview with veteran politician Sir Gerald Kaufman. I'm Christine Burns and this is Just Plain Sense. Gerald Kaufman MP grew up as one of seven children in a Jewish working class immigrant family in Leeds in the 1930s. In the previous episode, he talked about his childhood, about becoming a journalist and political candidate in the 1950s, and about going on to work closely with Labour Prime Minister Harold Wilson as an aide and then a junior minister. But during the early 1960s, Gerald also wrote for the famous satirical programme That Was The Week That Was. I asked him how that had come about. What happened was this. I used to go back to Leeds to see my mother every few weeks. And I'd seen in the newspapers that there was this television programme going to start on a Saturday night. And I went to Leeds and we watched it. Everybody watched television in those days and there were only two television channels the BBC and ITV. And on this Saturday night, I remember sitting there with my mother watching this programme that was weak, that was, full of political sketches. And as I watched, I thought to myself, I can do this. And... That was the first programme in the series. And when I got back to the office on Monday morning to the Daily Mirror office, I'd had a think over the weekend and I'd thought of an idea. And I rang the BBC and asked to speak to the producer of That Was The Week That Was, a man called Ned Sherin. And I didn't know him and he didn't know me. But I was put through, Mm -hmm. just like that. That wouldn't happen now. You'd get recorded announcements and listening to music (laughs) and somebody saying, what is it you want to talk to him about? But the BBC switchboard just put Mm -hmm. me through to him. And I said who I was, that I was a member of the political staff of the Daily Mirror, and I'd had this idea. And I told him what the idea was. And he said, write it, just like that. And later in the week, he sent round a taxi for the script. No fax in those days, no internet in those days. You typed it out with a carbon paper for the copy. And he used to collect all the scripts from everybody by taxi. He must have kept the London taxi service going on his own. And I think it was collected on the Wednesday... And on the Saturday night, there it was, broadcast, televised, transmitted, with my name on the crawling caption at the bottom of the screen. And from then I wrote for him for most weeks. I'd had the ideas. He never, ever asked me specifically to do anything. I'd get an idea and I'd ring him up and say, Ned... 
I've got this idea, and I'd tell him what the idea was, and he said, write it, and on the Saturday night there it would be on the TV. Mm. And, and that was a wonderful experience for me because it taught me what I had not been able to do before. It taught me how to write a script for other people to play. I'd by then done some broadcasting talks and interviews myself on politics, but this was the first time in which I'd written for a feature programme on television, and it liberated me. Mm. Do you think there was something about that, the politics of that time that actually gave rise to this, this new form of satire? I'm thinking there was, there was a big change in, in society, wasn't there? So Hugh... Carlton Green, who was the Director General of the BBC then, had decided that he wanted a TV programme which was akin to the kind of satire they had on the German stages in post-war Germany before Hitler came to power. The kind of thing that is so brilliantly given a pastiche in the film Cabaret. Mm -hmm. And he decided he wanted to have that on British television. And so he got a group of people to together, Ned Sherin, a, a, a man called Do Donald Baverstock, another man called Alastair Milne, who were BBC producers, mm -hmm and got them together, and they decided that they'd try this. And they thought up this utterly brilliant title of That Was The Week That Was, otherwise known as TW3. And it caught on instantly. And as I say, there were only two television channels, and everything was live, mm -hmm. not recorded and filmed and taped as they are now. So it was broadcast live on a Saturday night, late on a Saturday night. And in those days, you couldn't record from television. So people stayed at home. Mm. Instead of going out to a meal or the theatre or the pictures or the pub, they stayed at home. Twelve million people watching That Was The Week That Was. And it was hugely admired and it had a great effect because there'd never been anything like it before. And it made fun of politicians, but with a basis of fact. Mm. That was what I was supposed to do, to use factual records and quotes in order to write my sketches. And that's what others did. That wonderful, wonderful partnership Keith Waterhouse and Willis Hall. Keith Waterhouse was a great friend of mine because we'd been on the Daily Mirror together. They wrote wonderful sketches before they went on to do other things like Keith Waterhouse writing Billy Liar and wonderful other novels and plays and eventually films. Everybody moved on from that was the week that was, when it was killed because the Conservative government put huge pressure on the BBC to kill it and said it was unfair with the general election coming. Mm. And since the Conservatives were in power, they were more a target of satire 
than the Labour Party, though the Labour Party got its share. And the Conservatives hated it. They really hated it. I'm not by that saying that they were obsessive about it, but they knew it was causing damage to them. And it was one of the factors, I think, that led to the Labour victory in the 1964 election. I'm not claiming too much for it. But it was a fantastic experience for, for me. And, and new people were found who had been on other programmes in some cases, but they now achieved a centrality in British education, uh, 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 entertainment. David Frost, for example. Mm -hmm. Nobody had ever heard of David Frost. And David Frost made his name there. That wonderful singer, Militant Martin, Martin, because they had very, very good, clever, biting, satirical songs. There was one about racism in the United States, which even today would be regarded as controversial. I, I remember... I remember a song they had about racism and then uh, 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 racism in the United States. I'm going back to Mississippi, and uh, where the Mississippi blood kind of mingles with the blood of the niggers who are hanging from the branches of the trees. Today, that will be regarded as provocative. And rightly, and we never, of course, now use the word nigger. I wanna go back to Mississippi, where the scent of blossoms kiss the evening breeze, where the Mississippi mud kind of mingles with the blood of the nigger. obviously so much material at that time as well things like the Profumo scandal there were the the spy scandals there was the you know the the the, the, the posturing of the the the, the conservatives Sir Alec Douglas Hume and uh, um what's it before him um uh, Macmillan uh, yeah, yes it was a dying government we can see that now and it got into so much trouble the Profumo scandal, even today I think the Profumo scandal <laughs> would still be a scandal, in which uh, um, the, 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 the minister for war was sleeping with a prostitute who was also sleeping with a Russian spy. I think that even today <laughs> we would regard that as a bit unusual. You, you couldn't write that, could you? <laughs> no. And it was known throughout the world. I I remember going... 
on holiday to Israel, because I used to go on holiday to Israel. I remember going on holiday to Israel and friends of mine, one of whom had been the Israeli ambassador in London, wanting to know the latest news. What was happening about Profubo? It was really, really famous. And the poor man, he was married to the film star, Valerie Hobson. I didn't know that. Yes, she a very, very elegant film star who was in films like Kind Hearts and Coronets. She was a very, very famous person. And of course, he'd betrayed her. I don't know what would happen these days uh, when we're living in a somewhat more relaxed atmosphere. But whatever whatever the view these days on sexual behavior, for a minister to be sleeping with a prostitute who was also sleeping with a Russian spy, I think would still be regarded as a little unusual. Now, back to this period between the 60s and the 70s, that was also the time when Britain got its first equalities legislation as well. There were several runs at a Race Relations Act. There was the Sex Discrimination Act in the... um, In fact, several goes at the Sex Discrimination Act as well through the 70s till 75. So what was it that was actually giving rise to that, that legislation? There were a number of scandals relating to homosexuality. There was a member of the peerage who was discovered to have been sleeping with rent boys. And I I can't remember exactly now, but I think they were underage rent boys. But in those days, any... I was going deviant, what was regarded as deviant sexual act, was beyond the pale mm-hmm. and was often a criminal offence. Somebody in the House of Commons, a member of Parliament, could be destroyed by being divorced, Mm -hmm. let alone having a relationship with a member of his or her own gender. And it was destructive of anybody's political career Mm -hmm. if it were discovered because that person would never announce it personally, that he was what was then called homosexual or or homo or queer, not gay. That was the end of it. That was the end of your political career. And in the 1960s, there was a feeling that this had to stop There was a report, the Wolfenden Report, on homosexuality, which recommended that sexual relationships between consenting adults in in private should no longer be a criminal offence. But it, because of course, it had been a criminal offence. That what that's what destroyed Oscar Wilde, and that got through. It didn't get through easily. I might tell you, it was started off by a playwright and he got it through in the House of Lords, a bill which was never expected to get through the House of Lords. It was a bill he used to call the Bill William. <laughs> Short, you know. <laughs> For Bill, yes. Yes. And, and then it got through in the House of Commons. And I tell you this, People talk about a progressive British House of Commons. It's never been progressive. Mm. 
the House of Commons has always been last in the queue to legalise reforms that most other people in the country have regarded as sensible and acceptable in the times. Take capital punishment. We used to hang people who committed murder, as I'm afraid they still do in too many other countries in the world. It took a very, very great deal of organising to get that done. So over the years, this country has become, I won't say more liberal, I would say less restrictive and and less oppressive and censures people less for behaviour which comes naturally to them within their own makeup. But it, let's be clear about this. We ought not to take pride in it because the House of Commons was always last in the queue rather than first in the queue. Take hunting of animals with dogs. It took us years to get that law. I played a very, very active part in that. It took years to to get that that done. And now this government is trying to reverse it. And and the whole question of gender and sex and so on is still very, very prurient in Britain in a way that it isn't, say, in France or some other countries on the continent. Well, we, we saw this with David Laws. Absolutely, with with David Law. What a convoluted explanation that poor guy mm. had to give. He fiddled his expenses, there's no doubt whatever mm. about that. And he offered this explanation that he'd done so in order to conceal a relationship that he had with another man because he didn't want his parents to know about it. Well, as somebody said at the time, if by then his parents didn't know about it, they were very unusual (laughs) parents. But there again, you see, here we are in the year 2010, and you can still have a scandal about this. this And it's a scandal, really, that the generality of the population are not bothered by. Mm. This is, on the whole, a very, very decent, kind, generous country. Of course, there are adverse aspects to that. Just going back to what you just said, um, I mean, I think MPs seem to have lost, lost a lot of respect. Do you, th- do you think there's... Uh, how, how can they gain it back? By serving their constituents. This is what it's all about in the end. I have 75,000 people whom I represent in the House of Commons. As far as I'm concerned, they come first. They come before anything else. When I go into my office in the morning, the first thing I do is deal with my constituency post. On Monday, my top priority will be dealing with the cases that I get tomorrow morning. Serve your constituents. Don't believe that somehow or other God created you to be an MP. You're no better than the people you represent. 
you're all as good as each other. You all have faults as well. And so my advice to anybody who wants to be an MP is don't look for the glory. Don't look for the international delegations. Don't look for right honourable or sir, as I've been fortunate enough to become. Look for your own constituents, the people who put you there and the people who need you there. That may sound sanctimonious, Christine, but it's true. You've never voted against a Labour government. Have you ever been tempted? I believe in loyalty. I'm a great fan of Stephen Sondheim. I'm going to the prom for his his 80th birthday, and I met him on a number of occasions. And he wrote a musical called Merrily We Roll Along, which is about three friends. And one of those friends turns into a nasty piece of work in the end and lets down the other two. But they sing a song about friendship. It's brilliant. Three people singing a song, interrupting each other. And one of the parts of it goes, friendship means uh, forgiving your friend, and one of them says, if you're wrong, and another one interrupts and says, when you're wrong. (laughs) It's easy to be loyal when your government or your party is doing well and doing right. Loyalty consists of giving support when you know they're wrong. And the overwhelming majority of the things the Labour government did in those 13 years of office were good and valuable and helped the people I represent in Parliament. But I was elected as Labour MP and although there were things the government did that I disagreed with, I bit my lip and I voted with them. Where did you think it all went wrong? I think that some of the things they did with regard to civil liberties were a, were a mistake. I think that those were the main things because when we had the terrorist incidents in Birmingham in the 1974 Labour government and they introduced anti-terrorist legislation, I believe that that anti-terrorist legislation went too far and I nearly resigned from the government over it, but I didn't resign from it, so I was party to it. And I believe what there were things relating to civil liberties that the Labour government did that was mistaken. Uh, I won't go on at length about it, but as I say, the... If I hadn't believed that there ought to be a Labour government, then that would be one thing. But I believe there ought to be a Labour government. And I don't believe you can pick and choose or nitpick. That brings me very neatly to my last question. Then, Are there any things that you've regretted over the years? Millions of things. Millions of things. I make mistakes every single day. And I shall go on doing so as long as I'm around. I can't think of anything utterly huge which makes me lose sleep at night. 
But yes, of course, there are things I've regretted, but I'm not going to give you a list. (laughs) (laughs) Any ambitions still outstanding? Just to go on serving the people of the Gorton constituency who've been so good to me. Sir Gerald Kaufman, thank you very much. I've been speaking to Sir Gerald Kaufman, Member of Parliament for Manchester Gorton. If you'd like to learn more about him, then, well, what's the best place to go? Wikipedia, I suppose. I'd have thought so, yes, though it's not always accurate about me, but read my books. Read my book, How to Be a Minister, which still goes on being sold. Read my books about the cinema, my life in the silver screen, and my book about the classic musical Meet Me in St. Louis. Read my books. Go out and buy them. You can get them on Amazon. That's a good plug. And that, as usual, brings us to the end of another episode of Just Plain Sense. If you'd like to hear more, then the place to go is our website, podcast.plain-sense.co.uk. Join us again soon for another programme on a topic relating to equality and diversity. For now, it's goodbye and thank you for listening. Just Plain Sense is a Plain Sense Limited production. Music